Well, tonight we have another short, short book of the Bible, one chapter, 25 verses, the letter from Jude. Verse 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Two men named Jude are prominent in the Gospels. The Jude who was one of the original apostles and Jude, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. I believe the latter Jude wrote this letter. You recall in John chapter 7 verse 5, prior to Jesus' resurrection, even his own brothers didn't believe in his true identity. Jesus told the people of Nazareth, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Familiarity often breeds contempt, and this actually occurred in Jesus' own family. But when the brothers saw how that Jesus had conquered death, suddenly all of their doubts were dispelled. All the evidence began to add up. They connected the dots. Yes, Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God. You know, we learn in Acts chapter 15 that another of Jesus' brothers, James, had a leadership role in the Jerusalem church. And here Jude identifies himself by his kin to James. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Isn't it amazing? If Jude had been a name dropper, you know, he could have introduced himself, brother of Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Look at me. Instead, it's brother of James, bondservant of Jesus. It shows Jude's humility, doesn't it? You know, more than a sibling, Jesus was his Savior. Rather than bro, Jude was his bondservant, or literally his love slave. You know, a bondservant was a special category of slave. After gaining his freedom, he continued on with his master, no longer out of obligation, but now out of love. You know, we too are bound to the Lord Jesus He holds claim to both heaven and earth and certainly our lives. His lordship demands our allegiance. We too are certainly the master's slaves. But once you know Jesus, his grace and his mercy and his gentleness, desire replaces duty. We serve the Lord no longer because we have to, but now because we want to. Well, Jude writes, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. This is us. God calls us to himself. He sets us aside for his purposes. And then he refuses to let anything snatch us out of his hand. I've got an illustration for you. Watch this. $20 bill, come to me. Wow. Wow. A $20 bill came to me. And what I've done, what I've done, I've got a $20 bill right here. What I've done is once I get it, then I take it. And I take it to myself. And I make it my own. And I reserve it for my purposes. But I'm still not done with it. Because then I put it in my pocket for safekeeping. And nobody can snatch it from me. It's there in my pocket. And this is what God has done with each of you. You've come to Jesus. He's called you. And you've come. And he's sanctified you. And he's made you his own. And now he's put you in his pocket for safe protection. Nobody can snatch you from his hand. That's what Jude writes to those who are called. 
sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. He finishes his greeting, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Not just added, but multiplied to you. Now he continues, beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. You see, initially Jude's desire was to write of our common salvation, the blessings that we all have in Christ. But another urgent issue was pressing upon his heart. He tells us, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Oh, a discourse on the facets of salvation would have been a luxury. More pressing, though, was a defense of the faith. And here's why. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude had encountered certain men, ungodly men, obviously false teachers, men who were denying the truth about God and the grace of God. You remember 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 had warned, there will be false teachers among you. Well, Jude would say they're already here. And he exhorts his readers to fight for the truth. According to a 2008 Pew Research survey among Christians in America, we too need to be fighting this same battle. For faith is slipping. Orthodoxy is waning. Did you know that today 52%, that's over half of so-called Christian America, now believes that Christianity is not the only way to eternal life? And when asked how one receives eternal life, only 30% said by faith alone, something that we as Christians who are biblically literate take for granted. The same percentage, 29%, said that it was by a person's actions that they were saved. And an additional 10% believed that it was a combination of deeds and faith. According to a 2011 Gallup poll, only one in three Americans now believe that the Bible should be taken literally. One in three. Here's the results of a 2009 survey done by the Barna Research Group. Did you know that only 34% of Americans believe that moral truth is absolute and unaffected by a person's circumstances? Only 34%. Only 50% believe the Bible is accurate in all of the principles that it teaches. Just 27% believe in Satan. And only 40% of Americans believe Jesus lived a sinful life. I'll I'm sorry, only believe he lived a sinless life, which is what he did. Here's how bad it's gotten. Among Americans, the most quoted Bible verse is, God helps those who help themselves. The problem is that that's not a Bible verse. It was a quote from Thomas Jefferson And yet in that survey, 82% of all Americans said it came from the Bible. Now here's my point. Churches across America have done a poor job of contending for the faith. Jude tells us to contend earnestly. The Greek word means to struggle. We need to wrestle for the truth. Man, I'll never forget the tiny little bit of wrestling I had to do in high school. It was in P.E. My mat time was the longest three minutes of my life. 
wrestling is intense and grueling and exhausting. I'm telling you, when that whistle blew, I was drained. I was totally spent. And this is the effort we should give to the defense of the word of God. We need to contend for the faith. Notice too, Jude tells us to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Notice God isn't adding any new truth. The scripture confirmed by Jesus and that issued from the pen of his 12 apostles is the truth given by God once for all, Jude says. In fact, the Bible you hold in your hand is God's authoritative word for all time and for all mankind. Years ago, I read Billy Graham's autobiography, and in the final chapter, he says this, Is it not arrogance or narrow-mindedness to claim that there is only one way of salvation or that the way we follow is the right way? I think not. Do we consider it arrogant or narrow-minded when a doctor points us to the one medicine that will cure us of a particular disease? The human race is infected with the disease of sin, and God has given us the remedy. Dare we... Dare we do anything less than urge people to comply with the remedy to their lives? Dr. Graham concluded, over the last 60 years, I've crossed paths with people who hold every kind of religious and philosophical view imaginable. Often I am moved by their commitment. But as the years have gone by, I have become even more convinced of the uniqueness and truth of the gospel of Christ. And in his book, Billy Graham goes on to explain his reasons for being so sure of the gospel, the authority of the Bible, the uniqueness of Jesus, the proof of his resurrection, the changed lives that result from the preaching of the gospel. We too need to be equally sure of God's truth and relentless in its defense and declaration. And not only do we need to contend for God's truth, but also his grace. Notice the word lewdness. It denotes a license to evil, which is not the meaning of grace. God sets us free from the Old Testament law, not to act lawlessly, but to act in love. True liberty produces a love for God and a love for others, not a license to serve ourselves. On March the 10th, 1998, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution ran a news story entitled, Praying for a Successful Heist. When I read the article, I couldn't believe it. I'll quote it to you. According to a federal indictment in Des Moines, Iowa, Kenneth Ray Bruner led his seven accomplices in prayer asking for God's protection just before they set out to knock off Herman's fine jewelry. I'm not making this up. They prayed before they went to rob the jewelry store. Bruner acknowledged, according to the indictment, that they were going to do bad things, but that they were not bad people. No one was hurt in the robbery, and everyone was behind bars the next day. And I hate to tell you, but it's true. This is how people today think. They are so blind to God's truth, they see no contradiction between being born again, knowing God, and robbing banks. Or sleeping with your boyfriend. Or taking from the company. Or fudging on your income tax. Or cheating on your spouse. God's grace frees us from condemnation so that we can know God and walk in His Spirit and obey God. 
But when his spirit enters our spirit, he changes us from the inside out. If you say you're a Christian and yet nothing in your life has changed, you aren't becoming more like Jesus, there's a problem. Something's wrong. You know, I ran across another set of disturbing stats which describe the similarities between people who say they're Christians and folks who make no such claim. The survey reported 27% of non-Christians volunteered their time to a nonprofit organization last week. Only 29% of born-again Christians did likewise. 48% of non-Christians gave money to a nonprofit organization in the past month. Less than that, 48% of born-again Christians gave an offering to their church. 49% of non-Christians try to influence another person's opinion last week. Again, less than that. 47% of born-again Christians try to do the same. 16% of non-Christians watched an X-rated movie in the last three months, whereas 9% of born-again Christians saw an X-rated movie in the last three months. My point is, is there's not a whole lot of difference between the behavior of believers and unbelievers, but there should be. There needs to be a difference. We need to be different people. We need to come out of the world, and we need to be distinct. We need to obey Jesus. You know the phrase, born again, it implies a change. A change has taken place in my basic nature, and it's working its way out in my life. If you're truly born again, you'll be different than you once were. You'll love instead of hate. You'll give instead of take. You'll care instead of stare past the need. You'll obey God rather than go your own way. Jude continues, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this. Now, now notice this letter was a reminder of what had already been written to these saints. In fact, you can compare the next few verses in Jude with 2 Peter chapter 2, and you'll be surprised by the similarities. In fact, many biblical scholars believe Jude actually borrowed from Peter. Reminds me of a song released by pop singer Mariah Carey. Her record soared to number two on the charts. She and her band had not planned on performing the song. It was added to their repertoire the night before a scheduled TV appearance. Someone had suggested that they sing an oldie. She chose a Jackson 5 tune, I'll Be There. Her band learned it the night before the show. The singer was shocked that the rehashed song, at the time, 22 years old, would become a hit single. In a sense, this is the letter of Jude. Perhaps it was a re-release of an old hit, 2 Peter chapter 2. It reminded believers of information they already knew, but that they needed to take very, very seriously. Let me also say, don't anybody get bent out of shape when one Bible teacher borrows from another Bible teacher. In fact, here's a little trade secret for you. It happens all the time with pastors. We're not afraid to borrow from each other. Matter of fact, did you hear about the guy who was preparing to teach a Bible study? And he was determined. He said, I'm going to be original or nothing. Turned out he was both. It's been said, originality is the art of concealing your sources. Hey, all truth is God's truth. It originates from him. 
And if something he gives me helps you to live it or say it better, then by all means, you use it for the glory of God. You don't have to worry about quoting me. As a matter of fact, I probably borrowed it from somebody else anyway. In fact, if you want to communicate something that I say to someone else, here's how you do it. The first time you quote me, you say, as Sandy Adams once said. The second time you quote it, you say, as a man once said. The third time you quote it, you say, as I've always said. (laughs) Well, Jude warns that false teachers are going to come. And those who are duped into following them will share their judgment. He illustrates this with several examples. The first are the Jews that God delivered from Egypt. Verse 5. He says that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. You see, the Hebrews had this awful habit of listening to the wrong people. No sooner had they exited Egypt that they started listening to that little twerp in the movie, Edward G. Robinson, who was always there contradicting Moses. Do, do, do you remember? You remember that? The little twerp that... Yeah, 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 yeah. They listened to, to uh, doubters. Later, they listened to Korah, you remember. Still later, they listened to the ten doubting spies rather than Joshua and Caleb. They perished because they followed bad counsel. Don't you make that mistake. Another example of those who shared the judgment of those who deceived them, verse 6, were the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Peter here recounts, or Jude recounts, this story in the context of Noah. Jude's phrase, who did not keep their proper domain, has been taken by some Bible teachers to mean that there were fallen angels who crossed a God-imposed barrier to engage sexually with mortal women. Genesis 6 implies this same activity when it says, Now it came to pass, the sons of God, which was a biblical idiom for angels, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. God was not pleased by what they had done. Genesis 6 continues, And there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. That these unions created a race of giants or freaks is evidence that the human gene pool had been perverted. And thus God took extraordinary measures to clean house and to start over. Hence the flood. He destroyed all but eight people in the flood. Realize this idea of sexual experiences with demons is not as bizarre a theme as you might think. It appears many times in the occult as well as in a lot of the UFO literature. You know, if you believe that UFOs are demonic appearances, which I do, Then what about sexual abductions? Could it be another instance of fallen angels leaving their proper domain, as Jude put it? This type of phenomena has even been portrayed in the movies. 
There's a scene in a 1985 movie, it was called Cocoon, where a female alien got a little too familiar with a human. These kinds of things are depicted even in the movies. Jude's point here is less provocative. There were angels created by God. They had seen the wonders of God, the beauty of his presence, and yet they had chose to rebel and go their own way. And now Jude warns us not to do the same. He says in verse 7, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh or homosexual experiences, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, understand, Ezekiel 16 verse 49 makes it clear that homosexuality was not the only sin of Sodom. It was only one of its sins. Pride, idleness, greed, apathy, all played a part in God's judgment of this city. And yet here Jude makes it pretty clear that sexual perversion was definitely on Sodom's list of sins. Understand, homosexuality is abnormal. It's a deviation from how God created the sexes. It's not how God designed us. That's what makes it a sin. On the one hand, homosexuals need to be embraced with God's love. They need to be invited to turn from their sin and follow Jesus. On the other hand, homosexuality is evidence of folks hardening their heart to God's truth. And Jude's point is that Sodom and its citizens, they started out blessed. They had advantages, tremendous advantages. But the problem was that they failed to honor God and obey his will. Don't you start out good and then turn your back on God. Verse 8, likewise also these dreamers... And here Jude jumps back to the false teachers that had crept into the church. These dreamers, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. In other words, they have no decorum. They have no respect for spiritual authority. They're arrogant and haughty and pretentious. They have no fear of God. He says, yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. The heretics of Jude's day, they had no sense of spiritual proportion. The dignitaries they spoke evil of extended even into the spiritual realm. Reminds me of some of today's bombastic preachers who get up and rail at the devil and shout vile epithets at the devil and his demons. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm no fan of the devil. In fact, I'd never say a nice word about him. But neither am I arrogant enough to call him out and pick a fight. The devil, though soiled and sinful, is an angelic being, and he's powerful. In Christ, he's no match for me. But I know on my own, I'm no match for him. And that's why we're told that Michael, the archangel, he's an archangel. That means he's an angel with some rank and with some muscle. When he continued, con- contended with sa- Satan over the body of Moses, he didn't shout vicious threats. Rather, he resisted Satan, but in a humble manner. Hey, Michael made sure that he put Jesus 
between him and the devil. He showed respect for spiritual realities and the power of his enemy. And thus he said, the Lord rebuke you. And this is my suggestion for all of you. (laughs) Whenever you confront the devil, don't try to take him on on your own. Make sure that you put Jesus between you and him. We never have to live in fear of the devil. Greater is Jesus who's in us than he who is in the world. James 4 verse 7 assures us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But that doesn't give us the right to act arrogantly as if we ourselves could take on the devil. Again, whenever you encounter the devil or his demons, always keep the Lord between you and him like Michael. The Lord rebuke you is the appropriate response. And then verse 11 tells us, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Jude gives us three more examples that warn us not to fall away from God's truth. And realize all three of these people, they started out in a good place, and yet they wandered away. The way of Cain, you remember, was anger. He was mad at his brother. God had accepted his brother's sacrifice and not his own. He got angry. The heir of Balaam was greed. He went divining for dollars. He agreed to curse God's people for a fee. And the rebellion of Korah was jealousy. He couldn't stand it that God's hand was upon Moses and not himself. Jude is telling us to do our best to avoid anger and greed and jealousy. It's by these three things that people fall away. Verse 12, he says, these are spots. The Greek word used is that of an underwater reef. You know, if a captain doesn't steer around the reef, he can sink the ship. And if we don't avoid anger and greed and jealousy, we can sink a church. To complete the thought, he says, these spots, watch for these spots in your love feasts. You see, the love feast was the church's weekly potluck. It was the community meal in the early church where the poor were fed, where the saints gathered together. Believers were refreshed. Everyone enjoyed beautiful fellowship through the love feast. It all culminated in the church taking communion together. And yet there were spots on their love feast. There were attitudes embodied in these false teachers that were spoiling and tarnishing even the love feast. He says, for while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Anger, greed, and jealousy are all weeds that grow from the same root, from selfishness. These false teachers, they were only concerned about themselves, not with the church at large. And it was apparent by how they acted at these love feasts. They clamored for attention. Rather than ministering to others. They broke in line to scarf up the food. Rather than be the first to share. They had no restraint. No fear of God Jude says. He says they are clouds without water. Carried about by the winds. Clouds without water. You know you see clouds and you hope for rain. A cloud speaks of promise. And yet these false teachers were clouds without water. They promised blessing, but the only person blessed by their ministry was themselves. He says they're late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. 
They had multiple chances to bear fruit, and yet they ended up barren. Despite second and third chances, these men never failed to disappoint. Verse 13, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. These false teachers, they produced waves and white caps of activity, but nothing much of eternal value was really accomplished in their ministry. You could say their ministry was all foam and no fruit. They were like wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Jude saves the best and most vivid description to last. These false teachers were like shooting stars that darted across the sky. They flashed against the heavens for a moment, for a second, but then sailed into oblivion. Their ministry counted for nothing. It never lasted. Once there was a woman, she went on a new diet, an all-garlic diet. Every morning, she started off her day with a garlic sandwich. At noon, it was garlic for lunch, garlicky food for dinner as well. In the end, the woman didn't lose any weight. But people said she looked a lot smaller from a distance. (laughs) and that was Jude's take on these false teachers oh they looked good they had style but when you got up close they lacked spiritual substance and character they were all show and no substance they might have looked good at a distance but not deep down and then Jude says in verse 14 now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now this blows my mind really. Look at how Enoch is identified. He is the seventh from Adam. Now that dates a guy. I mean, if you're the seventh from Adam, you've lived a long, long time ago. If you're the seventh generation, if you're in a generation that's shouting distance from Adam, you're an old person. But what did this ancient Enoch preach? And this is what amazes me. He preached the second coming of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Even from the seventh from Adam. He warned the world that one day Jesus will appear with all his saints and vent God's wrath on this wicked world. Jude continues his seething attack on these false teachers. He says, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. And they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Oh, rather than tell you what God says, they tell you what you want to hear. They flatter their hearers with falsehood rather than challenge them with God's truth. You see, the goal for these false teachers is to gain support for themselves and for their ministry instead of bringing salvation to their hearers. One year I received a card from a member of our church. It read, Thank you for teaching God's word and not a lot of other stuff. (laughs) I hope that's still true. 
God's word is what we desperately need. Verse 17, but you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. And again, Jude reminds us. He wanted to write of our common salvation, but instead he warns us to defend the faith. He reminds us that there are people who are false prophets. You know, Jesus himself and the apostles predicted that insincere people would infiltrate the church to pad their own pockets. Men who are more sensual than spiritual, more lustful than loving. These false teachers were more out for themselves than out for God. They were more in tune with their physical appetites than with any kind of spiritual hunger. And under this kind of self-centered, self-absorbed leadership, the church only fractures and splinters. You know, all too often, cracks in the church are caused by the carnality of its leaders. Godly, unselfish, servant-hearted leadership is what binds a church together. When good leaders are setting the pace and submitting to God and each other and are following biblical wisdom, the people follow suit and they remain united. And thus Jude encourages them. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. If I could give you any piece of advice tonight, keep yourself in the love of God. Here's the key to victorious Christian living. Keep yourself in the love of God. Or another way of saying it, stay under the spout where the blessings come out. That's where you need to be. This is Jude 20 and 21 in a nutshell. Keep yourself in the love of God. Stay under the spout where the blessings come out. God's love is ceaseless. It's always pouring showers of blessing. So don't you put up an umbrella. Don't you let anything separate you or block that love from pouring into your life. Keep yourself in the blessing place. And here's how you do it. Jude gives us three guidelines. First, you keep yourself in the love of God by building yourself up on your most holy faith. Second, by praying in the Holy Spirit. And then third, by looking for the mercy of our Lord unto eternal life. Here's how to stay in the love of God. First thing you do, you need to add some muscle to your faith. And how do you do that? By studying and applying God's Word. Never forget Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And then you depend on the Holy Spirit's inspiration and guidance. Hey, perhaps God wants you to praise him with the gift of tongues. If he does, he'll provide. Don't shy away or be inhibited. When it comes to prayer, seek whatever spiritual advantage the Holy Spirit might want to give you. Pray in the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, live today in light of eternity. Look, be always on the lookout for the mercy of our Lord, the great escape. We call it the rapture. The Bible promises that before judgment falls on the church, the church will rise into the sky, will be caught up to live forever with Jesus. 
So this is how to keep yourself in the love of God. Build your faith. Pray in the Spirit. And always be looking for His mercy. Verse 22 tells us, And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And here Jude lays out two types of evangelism. You know, there are folks who hear about the love of Jesus and they immediately, they want to follow the Lord. They're drawn to God by his love. It's Romans 2 verse 4. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And for many people it is the goodness of God that draws us to repentance. Some people are led to Christ by the sweet-smelling fragrance of his love. (laughs) But for others, it takes the sulfur smell of burning flesh rising from the flames of hell to get their attention. G. Campbell Morgan once said, I admit that I have seen a far larger number surrender to Christ when I've been preaching on the terrible results of neglecting salvation than when dwelling on any other theme. Reminds me of the New York cabbie and the pastor. Both men died about the same time. They both went to heaven. They're standing there at the gate. An angel walked in, took the cab driver, First, gave him a grand tour of heaven. Gave him special treatment. It was amazing. The pastor's still waiting out in the, in the lobby. And, and as he waited, he kind of got ticked off. I mean, why did he have to wait? He was a pastor, no less. Why did he have to wait while this cab driver gets all the special attention? Well, finally, the, came, the angel came back to usher him in. And the pastor just couldn't help it. He, he had to ask. He said, man, I've loved... People, all these years, I've been faithful to teach God's word. Why was that cabbie giving special treatment over me? The angel replied, well, you did comfort folks, but that New York cab driver, he scared the hell out of them. (laughs) Well, that's kind of the idea here. I I mean, there are people so lodged in sin that it takes some good old-fashioned fear to shake them up. They need to be confronted with the reality of hell. They need to understand the torments that await them if they continue to spurn God's love and reject the offer of Jesus Christ. On some have compassion, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. And then Jude closes in verse 24 with a song of praise, a doxology. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Here's a wonderful refrain. It's worthy of our examination. Notice he says, now to him who is able... You know, one of the fascinating studies that you can make in your Bible is to note all the things that God is able to do. Daniel 3, verse 17, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tell the king that God is able to deliver them from this fiery furnace. 
In Matthew 3 verse 9, John the Baptist says that God is able to make children of Abraham out of Galilean rocks, daughters and sons out of stones. Romans 4 verse 21 says that God is able to perform what he's promised. Ephesians 3.20 states that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8 says that if we give to God, he is able to make his blessing abound to us. Hebrews 2 verse 18 assures us that God is able to help us when we're tempted. Aren't you glad? And Hebrews 7 verse 25 promises us that God is able to save to the uttermost those who come to Christ. The story of the Bible is that God is able. And Jude adds to the marvelous list of things that God is able to do. He says to us in verse 24 that God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I see folks who come to Christ and they're so fragile. Their faith is so weak, they're hanging on by a thread. They come in desperation and they weep and they ask for God's forgiveness. Oh yes, they leave happier and smiling. There's now a bounce to their step. There's a song in their heart. Yet you know that they're going home to the same problems they left behind when they came to church. The same burdens that existed still exist. Tomorrow they're going to face the same temptations that brought them here today. And you ask, is there any hope for these new believers, these babes in Christ? Will they still be walking with Jesus next week? Or will they just get sucked right back up into the web of sin? I mean, why do we have any confidence at all that you or me will still be living for Jesus next week or the week after or for following years or for decades to come? Why do we have any confidence? It's because of this. God is able to keep us from stumbling. God is able. If we hold on to Jesus, we will make it. Through the tough spots down the rocky roads, we'll survive the slip-ups and the stumbles, and we will arrive at God's throne because God is able. As Jude said, God is able to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I know that I'm not able. Hopefully you know that you're not able, but God is able. And my faith is in his abilities not my own. God is able. Would you say it with me? God is able. He is able to present you before his throne. He's able to keep you from stumbling. And there we have the book of Jude.